One of the most dramatic scenes in the book of Revelation is the binding of Satan so that he can no longer deceive the nations. But does this event happen in the future, or has it already happened in the past? That's next on today's episode of The Dance of Life. Welcome back to the show, everybody. My name is Tudor Alexander. I'm your host on this wonderful day. Today is part four of our End Times eschatology series. We're looking at whether Satan is bound in the past or in the future. It's actually a pretty important question because a lot of views that rely on a future millennial reign of Christ, reading Revelation 20 literally, uh, believe that Satan will be bound in the future. And that's a very important question because there's a lot of implications theologically for that as well as contradictions with what Scripture tells us. And so today in this episode, we're going to focus on what does the Word tell us about the binding of Satan and whether it should be seen as a future future event or something that happened in the past already. And that's really important for several reasons, which we'll get into. But if you haven't, if you're just joining us, if you haven't seen the previous episodes, please go check those out too. We're building slowly and steadily on each previous episode. So, so far we've looked at the five main end times views. We've looked at how they how they differ in reading the Bible, how they differ in reading Bible prophecy. Some are more literal, some are more figurative. Um, and this is one of those things where do you read the binding of Satan as a literal thing and, and reading it chronologically as a future event based on how you read Revelation 20, which we'll we'll get into in just a bit. Or do you read it as a spiritual thing, as a more figurative thing? And so we'll get into that. But that's one of the main differences in end times views. Now, many end times views rely on this idea of a future millennial reign. And that future millennial reign obviously comes with, inherently comes with uh, the binding of Satan being a future event. But so far we've looked at the rapture and how it can't be possible for there to be a secret rapture, but rather everything is happening when Jesus arrives, everything's public, everything is glorious. You know, Jesus arrives with lightning and thunder and light and fire and, you know, all the obvious signs that there can be. We looked at how the, the angels are rapturing the believers. And we also looked at the last episode, how Jesus is reigning as king right now, spiritually, as it was in the Old Testament when when Yahweh, you know, Jesus is Yahweh, when Yahweh was reigning over the Israelites as a spiritual king, but then they rejected Yahweh and he gave them a physical line of kings. But of course, the physical line was a type and shadow for the real deal fulfilled in Jesus. But we looked at what scripture had to say and very important is that Jesus has to be king in order to be priest. Now, if you watched last week's episode, that was a huge point that I wanted you to take away from. If you remember nothing else, remember that Jesus has to be king and priest at the same time. Why that's important is, if he's reigning in the future as king, then he cannot be priest right now. And if he's not priest right now, then we don't have intercession and we don't have the gospel. So, you know, unintentionally, if you believe that Jesus is not king right now, you are unintentionally denying the power of the gospel. Now, of course, our doctrine doesn't have to be perfect to be saved. Glory to God for that. But ultimately, we have to be careful what we believe and what we allow into our minds. We have to really think things through because nowadays everybody uses the Bible to support their views. And I mean, it's really crazy, right? You see, for example, the word of faith 
movement and how it's using the Bible to make God into an ATM and a slot machine or a magical genie lamp that you can say the right phrase and he'll bring prosperity into your life. And so if you don't have discernment, it's very easy to believe that these types of teachings are very, quote unquote, biblical. But they're not. They're very far from it. So we have to have discernment that just because somebody is using Bible verses and, you know, using various commentaries or things that they are necessarily presenting something true about the Bible. And so I hope that throughout this series, I'll be able to give you episode by episode um, ammunition and strength and great information that you can reference with scripture, you can reference with history, and you can reference with the Holy Spirit as well, because he's always guiding us to all truth. And so today's episode is a continuation of this idea that Really, should we be wondering if the millennial kingdom is future or is it already happening? And that's ultimately the conclusion we'll get to. Now, again, my point with this series is not to make you identify as any particular end times view. I don't want you to say, oh, I'm an amillennialist now, or I'm a postmillennialist, or I'm whatever. Because if you recall from the very first episode, every view has its problems. Every view has its shortcomings. Every view has certain things that... Um, that they get right, but then you know, they, get, they go off the beaten path and they get lost in the woods. And so I think that the correct biblical view is a nuanced view. It's a view that takes into consideration each one of these elements one by one and forms a conclusion. So we looked at whether Jesus was king now or in the future, and the answer is that he's king now. And good thing that he is, because then we have him as priest as well. He has to be king and priest at the same time, which means that he's king right now, because we know he is high priest. Now, today's episode, we're looking at whether Satan is bound in the future or in the past. And my argument's going to be that he's bound in the past for several reasons. But if you believe in premillennialism, if you believe in dispensationalism, if you believe in postmillennialism, then the idea of Satan being bound is a future reality most of the time. It's looking at it being bound after Christ comes, reigns for a thousand literal years or a long period of time, according to postmillennialism, and then Satan is bound. Or sorry, Satan is bound right before the thousand years start, then he's released after the thousand years are over. So the question is, are these things happening in the future or has Satan already been bound and even possibly been released? That's something we're going to explore in this episode. So I hope it's going to be interesting. I hope it's going to be edifying and empowering for your faith. Now, again, the big question, because I used to believe in premillennialism, I used to be not dispensational, dispensational premillennialism. Some of these words are so long, my goodness. I wish they were shorter, but I guess there's no other way to, to say it. But I used to be a premillennial. I used to believe in a literal future reign of Christ on the earth. And of course, I've changed my mind, especially if you saw the last episode about Jesus being king because he has to be king in order to be priest. And of course, there's a lot of other scriptures that testify about the authority and rulership and kingship of Jesus being at the moment that he ascended into heaven right after the resurrection. Not sometime in the future, not when he comes back for a thousand years, but really right after the ascension, um, after the resurrection. So here was the thing that really got me with this whole Satan being bound thing, though. When I used to believe in a future millennial reign of Christ. And this is something that everybody who believes in this, who believes in a future millennial reign of Christ, has to answer, because there really isn't an answer. 
And the, the thing is this, why would Satan be released after a thousand years of a glorious reign where Jesus is physically present on the earth and reigning in a basically a golden age of Christianity? Why would Satan be released after that? That's a, that's a really tough question to answer because there really isn't an answer. And so ultimately some of the answers that come up are, first one would be to test mankind so that, you know, to basically exonerate God and prove that even, you know, with a, with a paradise situation that mankind still makes the mistake of following evil and following Satan. But that's already been, the, the response to that is that that's already been proven in, in the Garden of Eden. So if that's already been proven, why would God do it again? It doesn't make any sense. So I think that should be rejected. Now others say because, and this is more a, a dispensational view, if you believe in a, in the pre-trib rapture where people are getting raptured, some people are getting left behind, like the series, right, uh, to come to Christ and to be born again during that time. And so those people who are getting left behind don't get new bodies. They enter heaven or enter the millennial kingdom with their physical bodies. They reproduce and they die. And so those people having children will keep having children. And after a thousand years, those people who never, who were born within the millennial kingdom, who never got a taste of life before the millennial kingdom, that's why Satan is being released, to test those people so that, you know, God can prove a point. But again, you, hopefully you can see that this just really doesn't make any sense. First and foremost, why would there be death and sin during a physical reign of Jesus Christ in his glorious form on earth. That doesn't make any sense. And we'll get more into this in future episodes, but I'm building the case for it now because ultimately the millennial kingdom is a future reality, just doesn't hold up to logic. It doesn't hold up to scripture. But one of these problems is again with, with Satan being bound. Why would Satan be released to test people who are being born during the millennial kingdom? If you remember from the rapture episode, it's very clear that when Jesus returns, a couple things happen. Those who are dead will be resurrected. And those who are remaining, who are being persecuted to take the mark of the beast and all that business, everybody's going to get transformed in the twinkling of an eye. Everybody gets a new body. And we meet Jesus in the air. That's another thing to put into your brain. That's just another big detail to remember. If you can remember anything from that episode that if you don't meet Jesus in the air, it's it's not the real deal. Whatever happens in the future, if they try to fake, <laughs> who knows what they're going to try to do? You know, the didache, you remember from the second century, it was a historical Christian document. They honestly believed that Satan would impersonate Christ at the end of the age. And I believe that's very possible. So if that's the case, one thing they can't fake is meeting Jesus in the air. But they can fake an impersonation of Jesus. They can fake a fake millennium. That's another reason why you shouldn't believe in a future millennial kingdom, but we'll get to that in a future episode. But either way, the point is that we're meeting Jesus in the air with new bodies. And what does scripture tell us about that? Well, it tells us that the new body is like the angels. You don't need to marry or be given in marriage. You're not going to be reproducing in eternity. There's going to not be any need for it. And so this idea that people who get left behind 
in the tribulation, which again, tribulation has been throughout time, but regardless, people who get left behind of the so-called rapture, they're going to be reproducing in the millennial kingdom. That's not biblical at all. That doesn't align with scripture whatsoever. And another reason, a final reason why it doesn't align is because of election. Now, I'm not going to get into this topic in this episode because it's very controversial. I've made a whole series on this. But it's very clear that the Bible teaches election. There is no partiality with God. So what does that mean? Well, God would not take people, rescue them who are destined to be saved, who he's chosen to save, and then leave behind other people who he's also chosen to ultimately save. See how that works? That's nonsense when you when you consider the truth of election and predestination that is throughout the Bible. And yes, I do believe in predestination because Acts 4, 27 through 28 tells us the cross is predestined. If the cross is predestined, then those who are going to accept Jesus and those who are going to crucify him are also predestined. The good and the bad, the wheat and the tares. It's all been predetermined. So if God is working in your life and he's opening your eyes, that's not something we can ever take credit for. That's by the grace of God that he's opened our eyes. Most of the world is lost. So the point of all this is that none of these things hold up to scrutiny. So we should reject this idea that at the very least you should ask questions as to, hmm, that doesn't really make sense that Satan would be released in the future after Jesus reigning on earth for a thousand years in, in a golden age type of situation. Doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. So it should make us question. Now, again, remember that Jesus is already king, so there is no future reign. When he comes back, he delivers the kingdom to the Father and ushers in eternity. There'll be a final judgment. Everybody's going to be resurrected, some to life, some to eternal death. And that's it. There's no literal time period of ruling after Jesus comes back. He'll be ruling. The triune God will be ruling through Jesus. But there's no millennial kingdom in the future. The millennial kingdom happened when Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, which was on his ascension. If you recall from the previous episode, we talked about the scene in Daniel 7, where the Son of Man presents himself before the Ancient of Days, and that was fulfilled at the ascension. And of course, we brought up a lot of good evidence for that, so again, that's something to go check out if you have missed it. But again, really we have to go sequentially here. And the last episode proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is king and has to be king. So a future millennial reign doesn't hold up to scrutiny. So what do we take from all this? Well, the timing of Satan being bound must have already happened. Has to be a past event. Can't be a future event. The question is, when did it happen? And if we can prove that Satan is already bound, then the whole idea of a future millennial kingdom, premillennialism, dispensationalism, all these views that rely on a future millennial reign of Christ fall apart. Now, this whole idea of Satan being bound comes from a few verses in Revelation 20. So let's jump to the text. Revelation 20, verses 2. This is called the thousand years chapter. And verse 2 says, And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And then again, we, we go down to verse 7 through 8 in the same chapter. This is the defeat of Satan. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. 
So this is the main picture that we see. And there are other texts that, that actually will give us some more context we'll look at later. But we see that Satan is prevented from deceiving the nations. And there's some detail about a battle that he has tried to deceive them to engaging in, which is the Battle of Armageddon. And he's prevented from doing that. So, so there's a general sense that he's deceiving, and also there's a specific goal, which is outright rebellion against Christ in battle. And so he's been prevented from doing both of these things, and we're going to expand on this in this episode. But again, the main problem, again, the main problem with this whole people reproducing in the millennial reign and Satan has to test them, that's why he's released. We are changed. We are transformed at the second coming. And so let's review some of those very key verses. First Thessalonians 4, verse 17 says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then, of course, you have some other parallel verses like 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verses 51 through 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. All. That's a pretty inclusive word. Changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. This is, by the way, the last seventh trumpet of Revelation. And we'll get into that in a very future episode. But for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. And of course, Mark chapter 12, verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So it's incontrovertible that when Jesus returns, the resurrection happens. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Therefore, the millennial reign is over and he hands over the kingdom to the father. And everybody who is resurrected or who is a, happens to be alive at that particular moment gets transformed into a body that is incorruptible and that is neither given into marriage or marries. Now there's various theories about relationships in heaven. I don't really have any, but one thing is certain. We're not going to be having babies in eternity. I believe in a physical eternity, we're going to be here on earth because the earth was created to be inhabited. But I don't believe that we will have babies or children of procreation at all the moment Jesus returns. And I think that's pretty well established in scripture. So the, the big questions to ask are, who is left to reproduce so that these supposed children would arise and be tempted by the devil after a thousand years? Another question to ask is if all the wicked are destroyed because the wrath of God has been poured out. Remember, before Jesus returns, there's the the bowl judgments, you know, there's the seals. Of course, the seals and trumpets are throughout time, but you have the bowl judgments which mimic the judgments on Egypt. And they're pretty severe for the people who took the mark of the beast. But either way, God's wrath is being, has been poured out. So who, who is left to be doing anything that would need to be tested by Satan and, and to prove that mankind is still wicked? I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. Another question to ask is if we have resurrected bodies that are incorruptible, how can we be tempted? That's something to ask. And again, the test already happened in the Garden of Eden. So why would God do it yet again? So what do we take from this? Well, there's no reason, first off, why Satan would be bound in the future. That makes absolutely no sense. He had to be bound sometime before the second coming, obviously. And the question is, when did that happen? And 
Another thing is that he must be released at some time before the second coming as well. It doesn't make sense that he would be released in the future after Jesus reigning, where, again, there's no wicked people left. There's no fleshly bodies. Everybody's been transformed. That doesn't make any sense. So the release and the binding had to have happened before the second coming. Now, we are in that time period. We're before the second coming of Jesus, obviously. And so the question is, when did these events happen? So let's take a look at Satan being bound and plundered at the first coming of Jesus Christ. If we look at uh, the parable of the strong man, one of my favorite parables, actually, it, it perfectly elucidates this point. And starts. we're going to start with Luke 11. There's a couple places where it's listed. Um, and we're going to go through Mark and through Matthew, but we'll look through Luke 11, verse 21 through 22 first. And it says like this, When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Now, if we look at the parallel text in Mark, that's chapter 3, verse 27, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And Matthew uh, chapter 12, 23 through 29. Now this is a whole chapter about how the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of basically casting out demons using witchcraft or, you know, Beelzebub, basically satanic power. And so they're blaspheming the Spirit of God. This is a very specific topic. But... In verse 23, it says, And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that his man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house, here it is, and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So, very important here, before we move on to one more final verse in Corinthians, Jesus is equating, so he got accused of basically casting out demons by the power of the devil. And he's saying, well, if that's the case, the devil's empire would fall. And then he gives the parable of the strong man. And so he equates the strong man with the devil. This is very important because it's very clear that, that it's not just a general term or it's, it's alluding to anything else, but the devil being plundered for his goods. So in all three books, in Luke, in, in Mark and in Matthew, Matthew is the main one that really gives us solid proof that the devil is the strong man being bound and plundered. But all three books talk about a, a strong man being bound and plundered, about a stronger person coming in to his house and taking away his armor that he trusted in and plundering his goods. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, we know that the devil is called the god of this world. And verse 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
So a couple things here. Satan was called the ruler of this world, the god of this world. And as we'll go on into this episode, you'll see exactly why. There's, there's been a, an entire context in history for that and, and legal precedent for that, which Christ took away through his death on the cross. But Satan was the ruler of this world. And for many people, he is the one that they worship still, even to this day, unfortunately. And so what if, so obviously the house is his kingdom. And what are his goods? Well, the goods are human souls, are people that he had as slaves. And the stronger person, in this case, Jesus Christ, obviously, plundered his house, his kingdom, by redeeming people and bringing them back to God through the gospel. Satan was unable to prevent the spread of the gospel to the elect, the people that God chose to save from the beginning of the, the world, from the foundation of the world. So why is election necessary in this whole idea? Well, again, I'm not going to get too much into this because this is sadly a very controversial topic, although I don't think it should be. But election is necessary first and foremost because Satan cannot prevent the elect from coming to God. Prior to the cross, there was no gospel. But with the advent of the cross, with the gospel message, Satan couldn't do anything to prevent people from getting saved. God's plan was in full swing, and it was going out throughout the world. So he's bound in the sense that he's spiritually prevented from blocking people from coming to God, from separating people like he separated Adam and Eve, because there was no gospel. Adam and Eve had an idyllic situation, but there was no way that they could be reconciled if they sinned. But now, through Jesus, there is a way, and that's why Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life, because he is the way that we get reconciled to Christ. And ever since the cross, man has had no obstacle between him and God. So Satan can no longer prevent people uh, from being in communion with God. He can no longer separate people from God. And that's a huge spiritual victory, because prior to that, again, the devil ruled this world in a spiritual way. And we'll get into how exactly that happened. It has to do with death and it has to do with the fall. But Satan is bound and cannot affect God's purpose. That's what happened at the cross. Now remember again, Acts 4, verse 27 through 28, that the cross was predestined. So let's jump to that text really quick because it's very telling. Verse 27 says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Look, my friends, the cross was predestined. You can't get around that. It had to be in order for us to live. But if the cross was predestined, then the people who were destined to reject Jesus so that he could be crucified, they were predestined too. And so were the people who were going to obey him and believe his words, like the apostles. Judas was predestined. In fact, there's a whole series I did on this where just because Judas was hanging out with the apostles and doing apostolic things doesn't mean he was ever saved. In fact, he was predestined to join Jesus's inner circle so that he could betray him. That gave the devil an offer he couldn't refuse, and in doing so, the devil sealed his fate and basically got bound spiritually and defeated. So the, the 
uh, cross was predestined and because it was predestined, so is the gospel. And because the gospel reconciles us back to God, Satan has lost his power as the accuser because now we have an advocate. So that was a huge victory that we obtained through Christ and through the cross. Now, another one, speaking of victory, another point to consider is this idea of a victory train and taking captives and and bringing them on the victory train. Now, in Old Testament, when, when kings would invade other areas, and this was not necessarily just a Hebrew practice, but a pretty ancient Near East, Near East practice, pretty global practice too, if you think about it. Anytime a country would invade another country, they would take captives in a captive train, whether they're on foot or on cages, and they would march them around back to the capital and parade the victory like, look, you know, we took prisoners. And so this idea is echoed in the Bible too. We see in Ephesians and also in Psalm 68. So let's go to those two texts and see what they have to say. So Ephesians 4, verses 8 through 14. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes." So, long story short, paraphrasing this, Paul is equating something happening in Psalm 68, which we'll read in just a second, about God taking a host of captives to Jesus' work. And we'll read a commentary on that too. I think it's a pretty good commentary. But he's equating Psalm 68 to Jesus' work on the cross, his ascension, his sitting at the right hand of the Father, assuming the kingly role. And, and so it's very obvious that we see a couple things. Jesus is king. Jesus has all authority. Jesus has conquered the principalities and the powers. That has prevented us, if you notice that last verse, verse 14, so we may no longer be children. Of course, this means in a spiritual sense. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. People were very, I mean, people still are very deceived. But thank God we have the, the gospel. Prior to the cross, Satanism and sacrificing children and you know paganism, it was in full display. People were wildly deceived, and there was no way to access the truth. Now you have the internet, especially with you know, the missionary age and all the things that have happened in the last 200 years to bring the gospel to all corners of the earth. Everybody has a chance to hear the word of God. That was not the case 2,000 years ago and before then. And so that's been a huge victory, spiritual victory over the powers of darkness, regardless of all the evil that's still present in the world. And we'll get into that. Um, but I want to jump to this commentary on Ephesians 4.8. But first, really quick, let's, let's review uh, Psalm 68, verse 18, the psalm that Paul equates to Jesus. And verse 18 says, You ascended on a high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Now here it says receiving gifts, and we're going to look at why there's a little difference. It says receiving and then 
in Ephesians um, 4, 8 through 14, he gave gifts to men, verse 8. So there's a slight discrepancy there, and people say, oh, is that contradicted by it? Well, no, it's it, it's more nuanced than that, and that's why I want to read this commentary. So let's jump to this commentary really quick. And this is by John Stott, and, um, and I'll po- post a link for it. But it goes like this. Psalm 68 is a call to God to come to the rescue of his people and vindicate them again, as in the olden days of the Old Testament. For he went in triumph before his people after the Exodus, so that Mount Sinai trembled and kings were scattered. Then, desiring Mount Zion as his abode, he came from Sinai to his holy place and ascended the high mount, leading captives in his train. It's all this very, it is all very vivid imagery. It seems that the transfer of the ark to Zion is likened to the triumphant march of Yahweh into his capital. Paul applies this picture to Christ's ascension, not arbitrarily because he detected a vague analogy between the two, but justifiably because he saw in the exaltation of Jesus a further fulfillment of this description of triumph of God. Christ ascended as conqueror to the Father's right hand, which we covered in the last episode, his train of captives being the principalities and powers he had defeated, dethroned, and disarmed. And if we scroll down a little bit, the place to begin an explanation is surely to see that the two renderings are only formally, but not substantially contradictory. Now this is talking about giving gifts versus receiving gifts. Words cannot be interpreted by themselves, but only in context. So we need to remember that after every conquest in the ancient world, there was invariably both a receiving of tribute and a distribution of largesse or properties that were taken. What conquerors took away from their captives, they gave away to their own people. The spoils were divided, the booty was shared, and it seems possible that the Hebrew text itself may imply this, since the verb could be translated brought rather than received gifts. And it's not without significance that the two ancient versions of trans- or translations, one Aramaic and the other Syriac, render it gave. So evidently this was already a traditional interpretation, meaning these two terms, giving and receiving, could be used kind of interchangeably. So there's no contradiction as a point. Moving on. One other interesting point needs to be made. Liturgical custom in the synagogues associated Psalm 68 with Pentecost, the Jewish feast commemorating the giving of the law. Paul's use of it in reference to the Christian Pentecost then makes a remarkable analogy. As Moses received the law and gave it to Israel, so Christ received the Spirit and gave him to his people in order to write God's law in their hearts and through their pastors he appointed in verse 11, to teach them the truth. This whole argument that receiving and giving belong indissolubly, boy, that's a new word, to each other, is aptly illustrated in Acts 2, verse 33, where Peter on the day of Pentecost said, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, there it is again about Christ's kingship, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured out his has poured out this which you see and hear. That was Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Christ could only give the gift he had received. So, what do we take from this? Well, first off, Paul attributed the resurrection and the ascension to the victory of God. This whole idea of taking captives and marching on Mount Zion and being a victor, that was attributed to Christ's resurrection and ascension. And again, another proof that Christ is already king. The Old Testament kings would take captives and march them back to the capital. This was spiritually fulfilled through Jesus taking spiritual captives, becoming a spiritual king, 
and ruling over all principalities and powers that were rulers before the cross. If you know anything about history, and we'll get into this whole thing with the fallen angels, the fallen angels were principalities that were governing the nations, and they misused their post, obviously. All the old religions, all the religions today, like Hinduism and you know all the pagan religions, all these things have their roots in fallen angel worship. The Egyptian religions, Sumerian religions, all those mythologies about, you know, ancient aliens. There's no aliens. They're all fallen angels. And so ultimately, if you know your history, you know where I'm going with this. But we receive the gift as Christians of the Holy Spirit. And also everything will be redeemed in the new earth, new Jerusalem, new bodies. So we receive both spiritual gifts and physical gifts through Christ's victory at the cross and ascending to be king and ruling over all principalities and powers. Now, I want to remind you of a verse that's very important. That's in Ephesians 1, verse 13 through 14. And that's about the Holy Spirit being a guarantee of our inheritance. Verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of, the tr- word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, here it is, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what's our inheritance? Well, our inheritance is our new body. It's being in the new earth, new heavens, new Jerusalem, having whatever we're going to have at that time. But that's our inheritance. And being born again and receiving the Holy Spirit, that's God's proof. He's giving you down payment to prove that he's serious about his plan, which is another reason why I believe that election and predestination, all the things the Bible says about that, is true. There is no way you can have a guarantee of your inheritance and lose your salvation, which is what people who believe that there is no election, that's what they believe. They believe you can lose your salvation. But the Bible is very clear. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our salvation. Now ask yourself this, can God give you a guarantee that he's going to give you the inheritance and then you can lose that? I don't think so. But the point is that that's our guarantee. And we've been given the gift, both the gift of our salvation spiritually and the future gifts that we'll receive in the new earth, new new eternity, new Jerusalem. So binding of principalities, the binding of principalities and the giving of gifts. this This is now the conclusion that's very important. So stay with me. The binding of the principalities and taking them captive and the giving of gifts and receiving gifts and believers getting gifts, these two things happen simultaneously. They are interdependent of one another. Do you see where I'm going with this? This is very important. The binding of the principalities, namely Satan, but also you know the fallen angels and all the demons and everybody who had spiritual authority over mankind. The binding and the giving of the gifts which the first gift is who? The Holy Spirit. When was that gift given? That was given at Pentecost. And then the rest was history. All of that happens simultaneously. They're they're tied together, basically. Okay? So that's really important to remember. Adam and Eve had inheritance, and they botched it. Because ultimately, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. There was no precedent for God to give his Holy Spirit yet. They botched it. And how do they botch it? Well, they obeyed the devil. They obeyed the devil, 
And in doing so, the devil knew that God has to be just. And the devil knew that God would punish them with death. And by punishing them with death, now the devil had sway over them through the power of death. All the ancient religions, they all worshipped the underworld. They all worshipped gods of death. It was all about the afterlife. That's how these beings, the devil and fallen angels, that's how they obtained worship. Remember, God is the God of life, the God of the living. God doesn't, he is not God of the dead, okay? He receives worship because he's the God of all life. He's the source of all life. Now, the devil can't create anything. There's no life in him. He's pure death. He's evil. So are the fallen angels. So what do they do? They try to get worship through death because they can't do what God does, so they have to do something different. They have to do the opposite. So they tricked mankind. Mankind lost their inheritance, in a sense, because they became slaves to death. They inherited a cursed world as a result of their disobedience. And throughout most of history, up until the cross, people were worshiping death gods and the underworld and were fooled into thinking, that's another study, but they were fooled into thinking that there's this immortal soul and so they have to do all these things in the living in life to be able to be okay with their immortal soul when they die, which is an illusion. That was another way that the fallen angels obtained worship and obedience is creating this false matrix of of a spiritual world. Now, of course, there is a spiritual realm, but we don't belong in that spiritual realm. The fallen angels do, but not us. We were made as contingent beings to be to have a relationship with God and to have life dependent on God. We don't exist outside of God. The moment you die, the Bible doesn't teach that you have an immortal soul. And again, this is another <laughs> another controversial topic, and it will be another series, but the people who wrote the Bible, the Hebrews, were unique in the ancient Near East. They did not believe in an immortal soul that continued after death. That is a Greek invention. That is a pagan idea. And it's pagan for a reason, because the fallen angels controlled pagan empires. And they fooled them into believing that there is an immortal soul, that you're just like us. You're just like the fallen angels. You can exist in the spirit world. And if you exist in the spirit world, well, then none of this matters. And you can do all these things and you can live forever. Do you see how it's all tied to that original lie that you shall not die, that you can have the tree of life, that you can somehow be immortal without God? It all comes into the picture. And again, this is a very expansive topic that I won't get into, but it's part of the deception. The fallen angels tried to take the inheritance through this deception, through this death cult that's been around for thousands of years. It's the oldest religion there is, the worship of death. And they also tried to take the inheritance through the Nephilim. If you know what the Nephilim are, they're basically a hybrid race of giants that were created by the interbreeding of the fallen angels with human women. Now, if you've never heard of that, it sounds pretty fantastical. I would encourage you to read uh, Stephen Quayle's Genesis 6 Giants. It's a great book. It's a bit long, but you can listen to it if you like audiobooks. And he has some phenomenal research and beyond a shadow of a doubt that there were giants and there possibly are still giants in the world today. Who knows? You know, strange, if truth is stranger than fiction and history has been largely written by people who want to obscure the truth. Let's put it that way. But the fallen angels tried to destroy mankind through 
corrupting the DNA through the Nephilim. The Bible has a few accounts of giants in it, like Goliath and some other giants uh, in, in various books like the Chronicles. And overall, there's this picture that this race was very aggressive, very evil, very dominating, maybe even possibly worshipped as demigods, inspired stories of, of gods and demigods and so on. And so there's something to it. There's something going on here, and it's and it's more than just, oh, this just happened. There was an agenda, there was a plan, and it was a plan by Satan all along. So we'll get into all this, but the main point is this. Jesus is king right now, which means that the binding has already happened because we have the Holy Spirit as a gift and the guarantee of our inheritance that's already been given out. And the taking of captives and giving of gifts happens they're interrelated. They don't happen thousands of years apart. Do you see how that works? The giving of gifts already happened. We know that. That's the Holy Spirit, Pentecost. So does that mean that he's going to take them captives after he's given the Holy Spirit? He's going to take them captives thousands of years later? I don't think so. So the best conclusion is that the binding already happened. And most likely, it happened right around the time of Jesus' life. Let's take a look at that. So when now before we get into that there's there's some verses about Christ's authority that I want to jump into and some really good ones but another point I want to talk about is the proto evangelion or the first gospel this is in genesis in the book of genesis verse uh chapter 3 verse 15 where after god curses everything curses creation curses adam curses the snake he basically announces what's going to happen he prophesies the rest of reality in a couple short sentences. Basically, that the Messiah is going to come, he's going to destroy your works, and you're going to bruise his heel. So let's jump to that verse, and that's verse 15 in chapter 3 of Genesis. And it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head. Now, pay attention to this. He, he shall bruise your head. There's a very important reason we're going to get to in a second. And you shall bruise his heel. What is, what is the point of this verse? This is announcing the Messiah, number one. But he shall bruise your head, meaning he's going to give you a death blow. You're going to bruise his heel, meaning you'll hurt him, but you're not going to destroy him. And of course, the crucifixion killed Jesus, but Jesus is God. He couldn't be killed. He resurrected, and he triumphed over the snake, whereas the snake was destroyed. Now, this is another clue that about the timing of things. So in the previous commentary we looked at, giving of gifts and the giving of the Holy Spirit, they happen interrelated. They're not thousands of years apart. Here's a more specific, another timeline marker. When the bruising of the heel happens, i.e. crucifixion, the bruising of the head happens, meaning the death blow to the snake will happen. The bruising of the heel gives the death blow to the snake. What does that mean? That means when Christ was on the cross and he made atonement for sins, the death blow was struck to Satan and he was bound. That's what that means. Now, I earlier I said to pay attention to the language where it says, he shall bruise your head. And there's a reason for that because the Dewey Reams Bible, which is a Jesuit Catholic Bible, says something else. And we'll get into that in a future episode, but I want to plant the seed now. Verse 315 in the Dewey Reims Bible. I will put enmities between thee and the woman, 
and thy seed and her seed, she shall crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. Isn't that interesting? She shall crush your head? Huh. Wait a minute. But the English Standard Version says, he shall bruise your head. And in King James, well, let's see what King James says. And I'll put enemy between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt, and thou shalt bruise his heel. He. So the big question is this. Why does the Dewey Rames Bible, which is a Catholic Jesuit Bible, why does it say she? And the answer is because of Mary worship and the whole plan to use Mary to bring in Islam, to bring in other people with false signs and wonders, which we're going to get into very deeply in future episodes. So stay tuned. But I want you to see the importance of discernment first and foremost. So either way, the point is that now we have another marker for timing. And the timing is this, when the bruising of the heel happened, which is the crucifixion, the death blow to the snake was basically given. Now, with that in mind, with all this in mind, let's look at how Christ has authority over principalities. Again, if you remember from last episode, Jesus is already king. He's not king in the future. He's already king. He's ruling spiritually. To be at the right hand of God means he's on the throne. He's already announced that, that he's on the throne. He's ruling He's called ruler of the kings of the earth. There's so many verses that we looked at about his authority, but let's review a few of them in this episode, starting with Ephesians 1, verse 19 through 23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he, wor- that he, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Here we go, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things, all things, notice that word, all things, under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills in all. Gave him all things. That's a completely inclusive term. The name name above every name authority above all principalities and rule and and every possible authority. All that is in the past tense. Gave. The letters happened after the ascension. So the last episode we talked about Jesus assuming the kingly role at the ascension, that means it's true. Jesus is already king. He's taking control. He's ruling. He's disarmed all the principalities. He's gone through the victory train. He's given the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He gave the death blow through his crucifixion. It's all coming together. So Satan is bound at the cross. Let's look at Colossians 2 verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Notice the past tense, disarmed, past tense. How about Luke chapter 10 verse 17 through 20? This is after the 72 come back and they were given authority to tread over scorpions and cast out demons. But let's see what happens. This is during the ministry of Jesus. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. (laughs) And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Keep this in mind because it's a, we're going to come back to this very phrase. 
I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Because it's mentioned in Revelation. Verse 19. Behold, I gave I have given authority to you to try on serpents and scorpions, and over all power over the over the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So rejoice that you are saved, that your God has chosen you to be saved. Don't rejoice that you have some sort of supernatural power. But he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And that's a very telling phrase because in Revelation 12, we see a vivid picture of a war in heaven where Satan is kicked out of heaven. Now, there's a lot of mythology around this verse and poor scholarship, mostly in alternative news sites. If you saw my episode of debunking the pre-Adamic first earth age, three earth ages, all this kind of stuff. It's just the idea that basically there's this long age beforehand. I mean, I don't even want to get into it because it's so convoluted, but if you have heard of such things like a first earth age, pre-Adamic age, three earth ages, two Genesis creations, that there's two creations, there's a lot of false prophets and false teachers spreading this kind of stuff on the internet. It's very popular in uh, alternative news sites. If you've heard of it, or worse, if you have believed in it, I hope you don't anymore, but I have debunked that pretty thoroughly in that episode. But one of the things I wanted to talk about is this idea that this scene in Revelation 12, which we'll read in just a moment, happened millions or billions of years ago in some cosmic age. And, you know, that was before time began. That's when Satan was kicked out. But the reality is that the scene in Revelation 12, which we're just about to read, didn't happen until the crucifixion. So let's jump to that verse. It's chapter 12 of Revelation, verses 7 through 10. Satan thrown down to earth. Now remember when Christ saw Satan fall like lightning? This is what it's about. Verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon who was thrown out, thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, this is important, listen to this, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So what do we take from this? This is, this is really important for several reasons. First off, you have to remember that the Bible prophecy and, and Bible imagery and visions and things, they concern things happening within our timeline. They do not concern things happening in heaven in the sense like, uh, we'll get into in a very future episode about some things that Seventh-day Adventists believe about the sanctuary. And they don't concern things outside of our timeline, meaning, oh, this happened billions and billions of years ago in some cosmic age that is nowhere written about. This event of Satan falling and being kicked out is portraying Satan losing his authority as the accuser because the legal precedent for forgiveness had been set through the cross. So again, Satan had power because he had legal standing. As long as he could be the accuser, 
God is just, and God does everything by the book. And there's several reasons why Satan was still in the court, in the heavenly court. If you look, for example, in the book of Job, when he presented before the court of heaven, and what was he doing? He was accusing God. He was accusing Job. He was throwing accusations. What about the Garden of Eden? He was still in the heavenly court. Now, he was obviously rebelling, but there were was, there was some very key things that he was doing. He was trying to discredit God. He was trying to discredit God and accuse and condemn. And it's very important to understand that there are other evidences throughout history that this spiritual battle has been going on for a very long time. In Psalm 22, one of the things that is mentioned is the bulls of Bashan. Now, there's a whole study on Psalm 22, but if you've looked into Psalms 22, the bulls of Bashan that are surrounding him, that's of an allegory, a metaphor for very strong forces, political forces, spiritual forces. There's a whole study by Michael Heiser on Bashan and how that resembles Baal, which really we know is Satan, and bulls are you know, very strong animals, so that represents high places of authority. Remember Acts 4, verse 27 through 28. All the rulers of this world were gathered against the Lord's anointed, fulfilling the prophecy. And so the bulls of Bashan, it's not just physical rulers like Pontius Pilate, the Pharisees, but there are these spiritual forces behind these rulers that were fighting against Jesus the entire time. I mean, just imagine for a second, the struggle in Christ's mind, having to deal with all that pain and suffering and mockery and to take it gracefully, when he could have just snapped his fingers and boom, it's all over. It was a spiritual warfare that we can't even imagine. And Jesus won. Praise God for that. But now, in Revelation 12, when it goes through this vivid scene of, of Satan being kicked out, We know that Satan was already part of the heavenly court in Job, in Eden, throughout all these examples. When he was kicked out, he lost his legal standing as the accuser. Why? Because we got an advocate through Christ. And the key verse in that is verse 10. Let's look at verse 10 one more time. So if we look at verse 10 in chapter 12, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come. So again, we see a time marker. Satan is kicked out. Now salvation has come and the authority of Christ has come. When did Christ assume authority? When he ascended, he became king, ruler over everything, over all authority, over all rule and all power. When did the Holy Spirit be given out? At Pentecost. So do you see all these things aligning around a general time period? where the cross destroyed the snake's head, it it stomped the snake's head, the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was the giving of gifts that's tied to taking captives, spiritual captives. The kicking out of Satan out of heaven is tied to salvation, right? Because now there's an advocate, there's no longer an accuser, so the gospel's going out. Jesus has ascended. The authority of Christ has come. That's paralleled with Satan getting kicked out. It's all tied to the same series of events. 
everybody can come into the kingdom now because of the gospel. Jesus will, said that he will draw all people to himself. Satan can't prevent that anymore. Now, does that mean that Satan is not active in the world? Of course not. There's, you can look any day in the world, there's plenty of evil. But he is not able to stop the gospel. He's not able to stop God's plan from unfolding in the hearts of his elect. And that's really the point. So all of this points to Satan being bound in, in the past. And Revelation, and even more importantly, we saw from Luke, we saw from Revelation 12, all these things are the same. Satan falling like lightning, the battle in heaven. And Revelation 20 of Satan being bound, all of those are the same thing. They're the same event. It's all recapitulation. Now, again, the problem with the literal binding is, are you going to read things literally? Are, is there going to be a real angel that comes with a real chain that binds a real giant dragon? I don't think so. It was a vision. Visions are metaphorical. They're symbolic. They use symbols. And so you have to remember that all of this is is symbolic. And so when you read Revelation 12 with new eyes from all of these perspectives that we just opened up, then it's very clear that Revelation 12 is and Revelation 20 are related. The binding that happens in Revelation 20 is Satan getting kicked out of heaven and losing his legal standing. And we're going to look at the legal re, um, repercussions or legal consequences of the cross in just a second. But Satan was disarmed. He was disarmed. He was the strong man. He was disarmed at Christ's first coming. He was the main principality of the world. The fallen angels worshipped him as God, as you'll see with some archaeological evidence, which is actually pretty stunning. And again, does that mean that Satan isn't active in the world? No, he is very active, but he's prevented from specific things. And we'll get into it in just a second. And the question is, if you can see these specific things, if you can see the nature of Satan's deception, then you'll understand the nature of his binding. Because a lot of times people say, well, how can he be bound with all this evil in the world? Well, yeah, it's not like all satanic activity has been stopped. Obviously not. That's going to end at the second coming. It's certain things have been, he's been bound in certain ways spiritually. And we're going to get right into that. So there's two ways that he's been bound. There's the general way and there's a specific way. And they're both, one of them is spiritual and one of them is physical. And we know from Revelation that one of, one of the things that he's trying to do is lead an all-out rebellion, a battle against Jesus Christ. And he's prevented from doing that. He's bound for, from rallying the troops of all the nations in all-out rebellion. However, he's also bound in a broader spiritual sense. And in order to understand that, we have to understand a few things. Obedience in the Bible is very important. Throughout Scripture, obedience is all about who do you obey, right? Do you obey God or do you obey the devil, basically? And that's, that was set up in the Garden of Eden. Now, Romans 6, verse 16 through 18 gives us some good clues about obedience. It says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to any as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness, and therefore life. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. 
and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So it's always been about who you obey. Satan wants to be God, and so he tried to get mankind to obey. And he did so in Eden. He, oh, he cleverly fooled Eve and Adam to obey him. And in doing so, he set a legal precedent because when he fooled Eve, he also accused God. He created certain deceptions in the world, which Christ later came to destroy. Now let's look at those deceptions. And they're very simple, but they're in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 through 5. And this is right where the temptation happens. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So everybody's familiar with these verses, but what do we take from them? Well, a couple things. First one is that God's word is unreliable. Satan is basically saying, you don't have to listen to God. What he's saying wasn't true. You're not going to die. And again, remember all the ancient pagan religions about the immortal soul and immortality or Gnosticism, that you can be immortal without the need for Jesus Christ. You will not die. That's part of the lie. But within that is also that you can't trust God's word. If you look at today, people deny the Bible, the validity of the Bible. People say it's just fairy tales. That lie is alive and well. Now, another lie is that God's character is questionable. How do we get that? Well, because Satan said, well, you know, God knows that in the day you're going to eat of the fruit, you're going to be like him. So he's basically trying to prevent you from eating the fruit. And this is Gnosticism. This is the idea that, you know, the Old Testament God is evil and we have to ascend through knowledge and we have to rebel and conquer the, the demiurge. All that nonsense. It inverts reality. It makes a good God into an evil God, and it makes you from being sinful and wretched, needing salvation, into your own Savior. That's Gnosticism in a nutshell. And it should be rejected because it's all over the place. I mean, movies like The Matrix, you know, all these different New Age ideas, it's all based on Gnosticism. And Gnosticism ultimately says that you have to be your own Savior. If there is a God, then he's probably questionable. Maybe we're living in a simulation and some evil computer is in charge of us. This kind of thinking is all Gnostic. And of course, the final lie that Satan basically put out in the world is that God isn't sovereign. You know, you can be the master of what's good and evil. You can create your reality. I'm sure you've heard of that through the law of attraction, through, you know, new age teachings, new age philosophies. That's very prevalent today very prevalent, that you can create your own reality, you can decide what's good and evil. Look at all the relativism that's in the world today. Everybody thinks that they're their own standard. What what does the Bible say? The Bible says the heart is desperately wicked. Don't lean on your own understanding. How can you trust your heart for what's good and evil when it's desperately wicked? Now, of course, heart in Hebrew is relating to the mind, but same idea. Our consciences are nothing without Jesus Christ, without the word of God as the, as the standard. So Satan put out these deceptions into the world. And as you can see, they're pretty, they're doing fine. Even after all this time, people don't trust God's word. They don't trust God's character. They say, oh, there's so much evil in the world. God couldn't be, God couldn't exist. Right. And they don't think that God is sovereign. They don't, they don't believe in election. They don't believe in predestination. They don't believe in the gospel. They don't believe in 
God's sovereign ability over life and death, over morality. They reject that. They rebel. And so that's the original deception. That is the deception that that Satan blinded humanity with. And so we know from 1 John 3, verse 8, that the Messiah came to destroy the works of the devil. Let's read that verse really quick because we're going to see exactly how each of these lies were destroyed by Christ. But verse 8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, this is a very interesting verse to me because in some sense you can say, oh, the works of the devil, and maybe it's the general, you know, just a general sense. But I think it's referring to specific sense. You know, the book of Revelation, the final chapters about a new earth, new Jerusalem, it's all about restoring us to the paradise that we had in Eden. Only now we have the context, we have the Holy Spirit, everything's been fulfilled. It is all fulfilled. But Eden, it's all about getting back to Eden. Well, what happened in Eden? We just read about it. The the main deceptions that were planted, that was the serpent seed. If you've heard of the serpent seed, it's not some physical reptilian seed. It's the philosophical, theological, mental seed, the belief system that the serpent planted in humanity. And that survived through Cain and through all the wicked, which is that God is not sovereign, that you can't trust God's word, and that God's character is not to be trusted. That's the seed that Satan planted. That's way more damaging than any reptilian nonsense that's out there. And I I have debunked this several times. Others have debunked it. If you believe in the serpent seed, please stop believing in the serpent seed as a physical seed. That's not what that's talking about. The seed of the serpent is a philosophical, theological seed. It's It's the word of God is compared to the seed in the parable of the sower. And so what is the word of the dragon? The word of the dragon, you just heard it. The three things that you can't trust God, that God is not sovereign, and that God's character is questionable. So Satan put that out into the world. And the question is, why didn't God destroy the devil right away? And this is, again, another reason why he had to go through all of these precedents until he was finally kicked out of heaven. He was allowed to question God when he showed up in the courtroom for Job. He was allowed to tempt Adam and Eve. And when he tempted Adam and Eve, he planted this little seed, this accusatory seed against God. God could have just snapped his fingers and destroyed the devil right there. But these things had to be falsified. Do you see the importance here? These lies had to be falsified. If God had destroyed the devil right away after he said what he said in the Garden of Eden, then mankind would have wondered, hmm, was the devil right? Was the devil onto something? The angels who exist in time and space, just like we do, every created being would have wondered, was the seed of the serpent correct? They would have questioned, hmm, maybe can you? Maybe you can be your own God. These things are very seductive ideas, obviously. The world is ruled by these ideas. So God allowed these things to happen so that Satan would falsify his own words. He was falsify his own testimony. That's the whole point. And when the Messiah came, there was no more there was no more way that Satan could defend his arguments, his accusations. And we're going to look at that. So 
God's word is the first thing we talked about, how it got discredited. Well, we know from John, the book of John, that the word became flesh through Jesus. Jesus gave us an example of how to live. Jesus was God incarnate. He overcame the world through the resurrection. He gave us an example of how to deal with suffering, how to love. The word became flesh. And we also have the word in written form, the Bible, the scriptures, where now we know the truth. We can consult the scriptures any point in time. Satan has not prevented that from going out into the world. So the word was redeemed. God's word was redeemed through Jesus becoming flesh. Isn't that something? Now God's character, we know that that's also tied in there because if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Jesus was proof of God's character being absolutely perfect, sinless, perfect, loving, generous, kind, and how he dealt with suffering was very humble. He was humble in heart, and his yoke was easy, and still is. And so ultimately, God's character was redeemed through the incarnation. People got to see God, and Satan's lies were shown for what they are, which are just lies. And of course, God's sovereignty as the master of life and death, Jesus, through his resurrection, proved that he was God, that he was sovereign over life and death, that you can fear him and obey him and listen to what he has to say because he'll promise you life. And truly, you get to live. Because not only do you live by being born again and getting a new life and new desires, you get to live forever through the resurrection, which is something that the devil could never promise. He said, you won't die. Do you see how that works? The devil tried to counterfeit the resurrection. You will not die. You'll have eternal life. But he couldn't hold up his end of the bargain because it was a lie. And ultimately, when we listened to the devil, we created an entire system that was centered around death rather than centering around life. When the devil took over the world by basically stealing it and making mankind obey, he ruled through the power of death, and mankind feared death. You fear dying. You fear all the things related to dying. You fear this whole invisible world that, oh my gosh, the afterlife, what do I do? Run, 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 rat race, sacrifice, all these things that happened. And mankind was forced into this matrix of obeying the devil through death. But Jesus overcame the world through his resurrection. Why that's so powerful is because now we could fear God. We have proof that he, his words are true, that his words lead to life. And we have hope that overcomes the world. Nothing the devil can do to you, nothing the world can do to you can change the fact that you've been redeemed, that you will have life forever with Jesus, with God in a perfect world. And that knowledge, that hope, that spirit, which is a guarantee of our future inheritance, that is something the devil can't touch. And that's why the devil's works were destroyed. All the works, the specific works that he planted in the Garden of Eden, through his lies and through he, throughout history, how he kept reinforcing those lies, they were destroyed at the cross. So I hope you see that by now. But specifically, remember, there's a general and a specific way that the devil is being bound from. So he was prevented from realizing those lies. Now, obviously, those lies are still alive and well in the world. But we know that there is an elect, people who need to come to Christ, who need to wake up, and people who are unelect who are reprobate, who could care less about God or Jesus or anything else, and they will die in their sins. So the point is that regardless that those lies are still in the world, 
Now there is a way for the elect that God has chosen to save to come to him, to be reconciled to him, and that's through the gospel. But the specific way that Revelation mentions Satan deceiving the nations is through the battle of Armageddon. Now, this is mentioned in Revelation 16, 19, and chapter 20. So let's take a look at all these verses and make some conclusions. In chapter 16, verses 13 through 16, this is the sixth seal. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go out about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in the Hebrew is called Armageddon. And then you have the seventh bowl. And so something is happening right before the end. The seventh bowl, the seventh trumpet, the seventh seal, all those things are happening simultaneously. And that's, we're going to get into the timing of all this in, in a future episode. But those, the seventh of everything is all aligning with the second coming of Christ. Now, if we jump to Revelation 19, verse 19. So chapter 19, verse 19. We see again this whole idea of a final battle. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And again, Revelation 20, verse 8. Defeat of Satan. And will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers is their number is like the sand of the sea. This is after the thousand years are ended. So what do we make from all this? Well, first off, Satan's spiritual deception in general was canceled because of the cross. God's plan is in full swing. People can now see the truth. The gospel is good news because it gives a way for us to be out of the world. It gives us a way to stop obeying the world, stop fearing death, but fear God instead and have a relationship with God and be reconciled to God. That completely cancels Satan's power and the world's power over your life. And Satan was prevented and delayed from organizing an all-out war or rebellion against Christ until the second coming. That was, that was delayed and prolonged until the very end. And so we have this vivid imagery in Revelation 16, 19, and 20. Obviously, it's talking about the same thing. Now, again, this is one of those things where you have to see the greater patterns. If Revelation 16 mentions Armageddon and, and a mention of the battle against Jesus, if it's mentioned again in Revelation 19, how can Revelation 20 be a, let's say, a future event a thousand years after that when it's recapitulating what's said in Revelation 16 and 19? Do you see how, the, how that works? Where if it was not, if it was a different battle, which doesn't make any sense, why would it be again at Armageddon? Why would there be a second battle at Armageddon? There wouldn't be. It's all the same battle. And so the conclusion is that this is recapitulation, meaning it's reviewing and rehashing. This is a common thing throughout Scripture. We've talked about this in the first episode, that some ways of reading Scripture, they don't read recapitulation. They don't see recapitulation. They see everything just literal and, and chronological. But you get into trouble with that because the Bible is full of recapitulation where 
Something will be said, and then another perspective on the same thing will be said again. We saw this throughout this entire chapter. Luke, where Satan fell from heaven, the battle in Revelation 12, uh, the binding of Satan in Revelation 20, those are all talking about the same thing. Then there's the battle in Revelation 16 and 19 and, and 20. It's the same battle. It's all one battle. It's at the very end of time when Jesus returns. Basically, the nations of the earth will be deceived into fighting against Jesus. And of course, they're going to lose. But that's basically the battle of Armageddon. Now, I want to get into a couple of interesting things, which is the legal implications of the cross and some stuff about Mount Hermon, if you know about that. But the legal implications of the cross are very interesting. And first and foremost, Messiah, there's a lot of implications. They all kind of weave in together into this beautiful picture. So the first thing is that the Messiah was the inheritor of the world. He was the one who the inheritance would go to. And of course, he was born through the incarnation. What does that mean? Satan can no longer have legal right to the world through his pawns. Through his pawns, meaning people who he's manipulating, possessing, through the Nephilim, through fallen angels. He can no longer have a right to the world because the Messiah was born. He died. He inherited the will. He resurrected. He ascended. He became king. He inherited all things. And so Satan has lost all way of inheriting anything. That's that's something to think about. That right there, just the fact that Jesus was born should give you a clue as to when the timing of the binding of Satan happened. Now, the second thing is this. Jesus is God, and so his blood is self-existent. It's the only blood in the universe that's self-existent, meaning life in and of itself. It's a unique type of blood. And because of that, his atonement is an infinite piggy bank. Okay, this is why you can't believe, you can't deny the Trinity. If you deny the Trinity, then you deny that Jesus is deity, God. He cannot be a created being. He has to be self-existent for the atonement to work in the way that it does. There's no other way around it. Jesus has to be God for the atonement to work. And so what that means is, if there's an infinite bank account, then God can buy you back. There's nothing that Satan, no, no amount of sin, no amount of work that Satan's done in people's lives can prevent God from paying the debt, past, present, and future. That's another way that the cross legally destroyed Satan's claim over people and over the earth. Now, of course, we know the resurrection is another one where Jesus overcame the power of death and in so doing, giving us a hope in the same thing. And by overcoming the power of death, that overcame the biggest idol that mankind had, which is death. Death was our biggest idol. Think about how much our lives are structured around death, knowing that you're going to die. Oh my gosh, I might get sick. You know, everything, insurance, everything that we do is based around this fear of death. But once you have Jesus in your life and he begins to change your heart and sanctify you and, and conform you to his image, you start detaching from these fears, these irrational fears that you had and the world doesn't have hold over you. You read the Bible, you get familiar with the end times, you get familiar with what the Word says about various things. You're not deceived. You don't. Your emotions don't get hooked onto by the news, by the media. You're at peace. 
That's the peace beyond all understanding, and that's why Jesus said that he overcame the world, and truly he did. Through him we too can overcome. Now another thing is that he gave us a legal way out of the law. Now, of course, Jesus died a physical death, but that's so that we could die a spiritual death, right? Now, Satan knows Scripture and the law better probably than any human being. And so he used that. He had power through death because he could accuse us. He could accuse us before God, and God has to be just. And that's what happened in the Garden of Eden. God, or Jesus, or gosh, Satan knew that God had to be just. Satan knew that he would punish Adam and Eve with death. And in so doing, Adam and Eve would become slaves to the world and give Satan indirect worship because of their fear of death and their progeny and all that stuff. Satan knew all that. He was very clever. But God was way more clever. And the gospel was predestined from the foundation of the world. So Satan had no chance. But the point is, is that we have a legal way out of being punished by the law. God is just, but God is also very merciful. And because of Jesus, we have a advocate in front of the law and the accuser can no longer stand. That's why he was kicked out of heaven. That's why the accuser of our brethren is no longer in his spot because he no longer has something to accuse. We have the perfect advocate, which God will accept any day of the week. And so there are no more accusations. There's no condemnation for those who believe in Jesus. And what a beautiful thing that is. Another thing that the cross did is that it set a deadline for the final judgment. And legally, there's an expiration date to this world. And so that means that the devil's time has been determined. It's done. He's going to be destroyed. There's a set ending to this, and there's eternity after that. That's really important. The final thing is that it set a legal precedent for God to give us his Holy Spirit, to basically take over our will, which was the plan all along. I mean, if you read the Bible so many times, we are compared to vessels, which are pots, basically, that, that contain water and things, you know, liquids or other things. We're vessels, some vessels for glory, some vessels for destruction. But either way, we're vessels. We were destined to be vessels to begin with. Now, I went into deep with this in my One Save, Always Save series or my election series about how we are just vessels. Now, do we have our own sense of the present moment and do we make choices? Yes, we do. But even psychology, I've studied psychology in my, in my college years. I, I loved behavior, human behavior, psychological studies. If you studied psychology, if you studied the brain, neuroscience, you know that this whole idea of libertarian free will is not as exact as people think it is. People have studied that we make up our minds about things subconsciously way before we actually make the decision. So there are a lot of things that control our behavior. And the point is this, without getting sidetracked into a very long and interesting topic, but the point is this, we do not have libertarian free will. We have a limited will. We experience choices. We experience one moment at a time. We have a humanness to us. But the will of God, the only person who has libertarian free will, meaning making decisions and choices free of influence, that's God. Only God alone has that kind of free will. And that's another lie from the Garden of Eden. 
from Satan himself that you can be like God, meaning you can have free will just like God, that you can decide what's between good and evil. Well, we can't. Without God's Spirit, we cannot make good decisions. That is why there needed to be a legal precedent for God to give his spirit into the vessels that he created. That was part of the plan all along. When we were made in the image of the creator, image refers to a particular Middle Eastern belief of a statue that would be inhabited by a spirit, a spiritual being. That was a belief. So that's why they worshiped images because they actually believed spirits inhabited them. Well, we are living images. Don't you get it? We're living images so that God could inhabit us with his spirit. That was the whole plan all along. But there had to be a precedent. God's not going to put his spirit in a sinful vessel. But through Jesus, that vessel is made new. You get a new heart and a new mind, a new life, and that gives the precedent for God legally to give his spirit. And that is why the power of the cross destroyed the works of the devil. Now, Mount Hermon is another interesting interesting topic that I want to get into really quick. And if you know about Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon was the place where the fallen angels landed, supposedly, uh, once they came to earth. And there's a lot of spiritual juju around that place, let's call it this way, which is very interesting. But first, first things first, we know that Satan can't beat God, and he knows that too. So what's his end goal? Well, his end goal is to either discredit God, as we've seen through history, through his main lies, that you can't trust God, that God's character is not trustworthy, that he's not sovereign. He's trying to discredit God or trying to prevent prophecy. And in particular, one of the main prophecies that he's tried to prevent, which is the very first prophecy he received, which is that of the Messiah in Genesis 3.15, which we read, that the Messiah would come and crush his head. So he tried to prevent that by issuing an order to the fallen, to his rebel angels to go forth and multiply. Again, copycat order. Just like God gave a command to Adam and Eve and blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Satan did the same thing with his fallen angels so that they would go and multiply and corrupt the, the DNA of mankind so that his savior, a Messiah, could not be born and could not inherit the earth. You see how that works? Because through the Nephilim, he could legal, have legal control over the earth. And there's a whole study on this, but we're going to look just at a couple things with this. But again, he tried to discredit God many times. We looked at it in Job, in Eden. And the reason God didn't destroy Satan is because he had to let Satan falsify his own claims. You know, evil in general shows us what life is like outside of God. I mean, for us who believe in Jesus, who trust the testimony of the, script, of the scriptures, we know that we're never going back to the life that we once had before we were born again. Amen for that. Because you look back and you're like, wow, how did I believe and do those things in the past? It's really quite crazy. And it's also a testament to the glory of God that he's able to change anyone who, whom he desires to change. So that's why you have to place your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone and receive a new heart and a new life. But imagine if he, if God had destroyed the devil, people would have been wondering either way that what happened in Eden would have had to happen. 
If he would have destroyed the devil, it would have been someone else that would have asked the same questions and raised the same rebellion. See how that works? The devil fulfilled his purpose. Even though he's evil, he fulfilled his purpose by falsifying the main claims against God. With, without a doubt, all self-aware life will have this illusion that they are the gods of their own existence, that they can determine what's right and wrong. That comes with the territory of being self-aware with this gift of life that God gave us. And God knows that. And God knows that those are the common rebellions that would come up. Ego, right? And so the devil had to be allowed to exist, had to be allowed to sow his seed so that it could be destroyed and falsified. And all of creation, all of history would testify against it. And that's exactly why he was allowed to exist. But on Mount Hermon, there's this inscription that was found. It's a Greek inscription. And it testifies to some very interesting things. So I want to take a look at that. So let's jump to this article. There's actually two articles I found. They're very well-written, relatively recent articles on this inscription on Mount Hermon. Very interesting. And the first one is called at Satan's Command, a new translation of the Mount Hermon inscription. And this is a very scholarly article. We're not going to read all of it, but there's some very interesting things in it. So let's take a look. In, in 1869, on the summit of Mount Hermon in Israel, British explorer Sir Charles Warren came across a sacred rectangular building made of hewn stone blocks located at Kassar Antar, the highest temple in the ancient world. Now, if you know anything really quick about high places, then you know what? You know why this would be one of the highest places where they would worship, pagan worship. Moving on. In the temple, he found a limestone stele, which may be the only extra-biblical and pagan memorial of Satan's actual command to the sons of God to create a hybrid race. We know that this mountain has long been regarded as a holy place. E.A. Myers believes the finding of the inscription is very much in line with the pagan history of the mountain. That such an enclosure, as first reported by Warren, exists on the summit of Hermon, lends credence to a long tradition of the sacred high place and supports the textual evidence for it as a holy mountain. It also provides evidence for the endurance of a people who must have made considerable effort to come and worship within such a harsh and cruel environment. That the mountain preserved its sacredness throughout its dramatically demonstrated by the presence of numerous temples and cult sites. The British Museum dates the inscription to the 3rd century, though I am persuaded it might have been written earlier between 8th and 3rd centuries BC. So this is quite a while ago. The earlier date is supported by evidence on the inscription and by the Mesopic evidence that we will examine shortly. Thus, based on the long pagan history of the locale, it is likely that pagan scribes chiseled the inscription with a phrase that had been passed down orally for millennia. That's really important. The inscription. We are indebted to Warren for finding and delivering the inscribed stele to the British Museum. And as shown in the figure, and you saw a picture of it, we are provided a chance to view the inscription on the actual stele and British Museum website. Comparing the parallel translations of Warren and Harvard scholar George Nicholsburg with that British Museum reveals discrepancies and even the omission of several words. This is why there's a new translation. Their translations are below. The omissions in the British Museum's translation are represented by brackets, 
the inserted words in the Warren Nicholsburg translation are in italics. So the British Museum goes like this, written on the base of the inscription, hence by the order of blank, God, blank, blank, those who do not take the oath. That's the British Museum's translation. But then Warren and Nicholsburg parallel translation goes like this. According to the command of the great and holy God, those who take an oath proceed from here. So what do we make of this? Well, let's, let's continue. Warren Nicholsburg is rightly connected the inscription with the oath taken by the angels under Semyaza. This is from the book of Enoch, in order to take wives according to the book of Enoch. Nicholsburg also skillfully realized that the name of God was supposed to be a Hellenized version of Baal or Hadad and connected it with the place name of Baal Hermon, Lord of Hermon. So this is not the God of the Bible. That's the main point. And, and again, this proves that the fallen angels worship Satan as God. Surprisingly, though, Warren Nicholsburg inserted the words and holy, which do not appear in the inscription. So it doesn't say holy God. It just says God. This interpretation gives the impression that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob gave the command to angels to create the race of Nephilim, but obviously he did not. Rather, the one who sent those angels was Satan, and this is a fact, which we will see in the inscription proves, as the, as the inscription proves. In First Enoch, the Holy and Mighty One is mentioned. However, the angels that descended and took the oath acted in opposition to the Holy and Mighty One's decrees, not in accordance with as evidence in first Enoch. Clearly the Holy One of Heaven is referred to God Yahweh, and he did not command the angels to make the Nephilim. That one's pretty obvious, but just in case. <laughs> Due to the wide divergence in omissions, I believe a re-examination of the inscription is necessary. I have tried to simplify the linguistic evidence, but if you do not care for it, I invite you to skip to the end of the chapter to read the conclusion. We're going to skip to the end of the chapter. You can check out the full article. I'll put the link for it. But it's a very fascinating article, a lot of good detail. I mean, just really good if you're really curious about it. But let's let's take a look at the very end here. So the point is that Satan's scheme failed. Upon the death of the host body, the spirit inside the Nephilim was separated and the fallen angel became disembodied once again. First Enoch describes how they became known as evil spirits on the earth. And of course, he goes on to talk about how basically the, the flood kind of created demons in a sense. You know, you had these Nephilim, which were hybrid angels and humans, and their spirits became disembodied spirits and demons. Now, again, there's a spirit world. There are demons. There are fallen angels. But the Nephilim were different than human beings. They were a hybrid race. That's why they had disembodied spirits when they were killed. Human beings do not have disembodied spirits. So when you're talking to the dead, when you think you're talking to the dead, when you're you know, seeing ancestors or you see all these new age practices of, oh, I spoke with my ancestors or I'm, you know, whatever. Even some Christian stuff, people are doing some grave meditations or whatever, you know, I've seen some stuff at Bethel Church and Hillsong. They're teaching people to go to graveyards and doing all kinds of crazy things that the Bible tells you not to do. But either way, the point is that you're not talking to your ancestors. You're not talking to the dead. You're not talking to anybody but demons who are presenting themselves to you as who you want to talk to. But let's look at the second article, which says this is called The Second Coming of Saturn, Part 18, the Mount Hermon Inscription. 
And, of course, there's a picture of that inscription again. The work of archaeologists continues to confirm the account of the Bible. A new, just-published translation of an inscription discovered about 150 years ago inside a temple on the summit of Mount Hermon adds more support for the theory that this entity, under a variety of names, i.e. Satan, has had a profound influence on human history and will play a devastating role before the final battle of the ages, Armageddon. So it reviews some of the same. This is Sir Charles Warren. This is the guy who made the discovery and reviews some of the same information. But there is something here that I want to look at. So they mention Sukkot, which is a feast where a lot of bulls are sacrificed in the Bible. Let's read about this. This suggests that Sukkot was unique in the annual calendar. In fact, in several places in the Old Testament, it's simply called the festival or the feast. But why so many bulls at this particular feast? And why the decreasing number of bulls slaughtered each day? We may never know how we never we never ugh, we may never know specifically. But it's fascinating and not coincidental, in my view, that Sukkot bears an interesting resemblance to a festival called Zukru, attesting during the time of the judge attested during the time of the judges at Emar. And this is the text. On the month of Sagmu, meaning the head of the year, on the fourteenth day, they offer seventy pure lamps provided by the king for all the seventy gods of the city of Emar. Seventy lambs for the seventy gods of Emar headed up by Dagon, sacrificed over seven days during a festival that began in the first month when the moon is full, just like at Sukkot. Pop quiz. How many bulls were sacrificed at Sukkot? The answer is 70. Dagon's underworld connection as the Bel Pagre, or Lord of the Corpse, or Lord of the Dead. Remember all those things I was mentioning about the fallen angels and how they basically obtain worship through death rather than through life? Well, Dagon was one of those principalities. This links his identity to El, Baal Hermon, Lord of the Mountain and the Towers, over Bashan. In other words, it's just another name for Satan which was believed to be the entrance to the underworld, the netherworld. Dagon was worshipped as the father of 70 gods, the complete set of all of them, in the same way that El held court on Mount Hermon with his consort, Asherah, and their 70 sons. So all this is kind of the same, different names for the same thing. Was this a coincidence? Dr. Noga Ayal Dushan of Israel's Bar Ilan University thinks not. In light of the Amorite custom, I would like to propose that the law in Numbers 29 prescribing the offering of 70 bulls during Sukkot, which has no parallel in any other Israelite festival, reflects the old Syrian custom of offering 70 sacrifices to the 70 gods, the whole pantheon, at the grand festival celebrated in the month of the new year. Here's where it starts to get interesting. I would go further. In light of the 70 sons of God allotted to the nations after the Tower of Babel incident, which matches the number of names in Genesis 10's Table of the Nations. God's requirement of 70 sacrificial bulls during Sukkot was a deliberate message to the Israelites, a reminder that he delivered them from the gods of the nations. It was so clear message to it was also a clear message to the rebellious Elohim, the angels, both the watchers who descended to the to Mount Hermon and the group placed over the nations over Babel. This is what's in store for you. So, a lot going on there. A lot going on. One more thing, and then we'll put it all together. In Matthew 16, we see the transfiguration. That was on Mount Hermon. And 
this is also where Jesus acknowledges, you know, that Simon, that the Father revealed to him that he's the Christ. This is where he's going to build the, the church on the rock, that the gates of hell will not prevail against. The whole context of Matthew 16, this whole chapter, is Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon was the seat of all these principalities. They they landed on Mount Hermon. There was a lot of pagan practices there. People believed that there was a gate to the underworld there. There's a lot going on there. So you can imagine that Jesus coming to that area, Caesarea Philippi, and having the transfiguration, basically proving like, look, it's over for you guys. I, you know, you came to this mountain, I'll show you who's really boss. And setting up, saying, claiming that his church is going to be set up on this rock and that no um, principality or gates of hell are going to prevail against it. Now, again, it's not, Peter is not the rock. Jesus is the rock. So the whole Catholic understanding of that phrase is totally bonkers. Peter is dead, awaiting to be resurrected. Jesus is the rock. Jesus throughout scripture is described as the rock. He's the rock in Daniel 2 that comes and destroys the worldly empires. He's the rock throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's very clear that the rock is Jesus. But the point is, is that Jesus is making a statement. So all of these together, let's put it together. Satan tried to discredit God and prevent the prophecy of the Messiah many times. Even after the flood, he tried with Nimrod, with the Tower of Babel. There's constantly trying to prevent the Messiah from coming. With the first advent of Jesus, his power and the power of the fallen angels who had been responsible for the nations, but they turned astray and they, you know, they followed Satan and say, oh, we will be our own gods. We don't need to obey God. Those powers were destroyed. And even in the Old Testament, God was warning, as you can see through the Feast of Sukkot, God was warning the principalities and reminding the Israelites, who is the real God? Who is the only God of the world and the universe? And so when the cross happened, Satan lost his power and his authority. He lost the ability to accuse and to com condemn people and tend to rightfully condemn them to death through the law and to accuse people because of grace, because of the gospel. Now, loss of authority does not mean loss of activity. Just because law, Satan lost authority doesn't mean he's any less active. If anything, he's even more active because he knows his time is up. But his authority, we're talking about spiritual authority and, and spiritual outcomes. He lost his authority. He is no longer able to, to do the things he was able to do. He cannot prevent the gospel. He cannot prevent the elect from coming to God. And he cannot separate the elect from God because there's a precedent for God to give his spirit. He, you, know, you can't get possessed. Believers can't get possessed. So Satan can't take control over you with his demon army. Now, of course, he can attack you like he attacked Job. But we know what happened to Job. God redeemed Job. God restored everything many times over. And so all of these things happened. You know, Satan lost all his power. Jesus is king. Satan got bound. And now we see it all coming out again. We see it all coming out. We see the world just in love with satanic things, devilish things, evil things. People are saying evil for good. 
you know, say evil is good, good is evil. We see all the lies of Satan. God's word is unreliable. God's character is unreliable. God is not sovereign. All these lies are coming back into the fold. The new age is front and center. People are more rebellious than ever. We are living in some crazy times. And ultimately, what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that Satan must be released. Satan must be released. And we'll get into a more specific timeline about this in the future. Because there's a lot of things that, if you understand history, there's a lot of things that happened in the last 150 to 200 years, since the mid-1800s. A lot of things have happened that really are a telling sign that we're in that last stage where the deception is ramping up, ramping up, ramping up. And of course, that deception is first and foremost the general deception we talked about, where you have the three lies, the main lies. And you see that through the New Age. You see that through rebellion. You see that through people are lovers of themselves. They don't love the truth. You see it everywhere. Rejection of the Bible. But all that is culminating in the specific deception, which is that he's going to lead the nations against battle, against God himself, which is at the Battle of Armageddon, which is at the Second Coming. And that's obviously still the future. But we are in the period, I believe, of Satan being released. I think it's very obvious. And so ultimately we look around and that's not hard to see because the world is getting crazy and it's burning down. (laughs) But you know what? As Christians, we have hope. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to be at peace with that because even though it gets crazier and crazier every day, and certainly it will, it will get crazier and crazier. The thing to remember is that you have the hope beyond all understanding. We have the peace beyond all understanding. No matter what happens to you, to your family, to your life, if you have the gospel, everything will work out. Everything will work out in this life, and certainly everything will work out in the next life. And that's the hope that we have that Satan and his army of trolls and slaves can do nothing about. That's why people in the first century church could endure being martyred because they knew the truth, that they were saved, that they couldn't lose their salvation, and that they could overcome through Jesus Christ. So next episode, we're going to look at how Abraham's promises, the promises to Abraham by God were already fulfilled. Because one of the main things that adds to this whole idea of a future millennial reign, especially for dispensationalism, is this idea that there are certain promises that aren't fulfilled yet. And we can look very clearly, very plainly at Scripture and see that the promises to Abraham were actually all fulfilled in time, in the Old Testament. And what that means is that there are no promises left for Abraham (laughs) to be fulfilled. There is no special status for Israel. Everybody's under the gospel. And, well, do the math. If Satan is bound already, if Jesus is king, then the millennial kingdom is right now. So I hope you've learned something today. I hope it's been fun. I know it's been on the longer end. Some of these topics are just very involved. But, man, I'll tell you, it's good to have very solid information, be in the Word, be in history, look at archaeology. It's good to do all these things because there's so many perspectives on things. And unless you really study, it's very easy to get um, deceived. And I'm not saying that necessarily people who are teaching that there's a future millennial reign are deceivers or are trying to be deceiving because I believed in that too. I wasn't trying to deceive anybody, but I was deceived because it's a deception. It's just a misinterpretation 
of the word. And I believe in a very dangerous way, it could be something that is a plan by the devil to use to create a fake millennial reign, to create a fake second coming of Christ. That's Remember, the didact in the second century, that's what they believed. They believed that Satan would impersonate Jesus. And I think that's certainly possible. If that's the case, and a lot of people think that there's going to be this future millennial reign, think about this carefully. There's going to be this future millennial reign, and Jesus is going to have to reign on the earth, and Satan impersonates Jesus. And people think that we've ushered in the golden age, and Jesus has to reign, and he has to reign until his enemies under his feet. Well, guess what? If you recognize the truth, and you say, no, that's not Jesus, that's the devil. Guess what? You become the enemy. And they'll, there'll be a day when they're doing, they think they're doing service to God by killing you. Isn't that something? Wouldn't that be the craziest thing ever? I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if that's going to happen. I think it's very possible. And if that's the case, we need to prepare mentally for that by studying the word, by studying the truth, and by building our resolve. But either way, I hope today was helpful. hope was educating. I hope you've learned something. And until next time, we'll see you and God bless.